Method Soap. They make soap. Um, Method Soap released this online marketing campaign. Um, it was a website called comeclean.com. And you go on the website, and it was a picture of a sink, and then two hands, um, and then a Method Soap bottle on the side of the sink. And the hands are supposed to be yours. It's kind of like a, you know, you see your hands in front of you, except for these really elegant lady hands, which I do not have. Um, And so on the right side of the screen, there's this little box that reads, enter your confession. Start the new year by coming, start the new year fresh by coming clean. So what you do is you write in your confession in this little block, in this little box, and you click the button that says come clean. And then the confession that you wrote appears on your lady hand. Um, and then the palm of your left hand, and then the palm goes and pumps the soap and washes the hands, and then the confession disappears. And it says, your hands are now clean. So brilliant marketing, right? I'm sure this got um, forwarded a bunch 12 years ago when it was made. Um, And it's this brilliant marketing because it's saying that method has the power to wash away whatever it is that you need washed away. But there's a problem because... People started confessing things that the people at Method Soap didn't know what to do with. People started confessing theft and adultery and murder. And soon, Method took the website down. Um, And perhaps it was because they realized that they were receiving these confessions of really bad stuff. And they thought, hey, we can't tell people that they're forgiven of this. Like, we're just a soap company. Um, We don't have that sort of power. But what this gets at for us is it gets at this question that is fundamental to our experience as humans. What do you do when you're sorry? What do you do when you feel sorry? You know, I've known people who are so overwhelmed with their guilt and their sin and their feeling of uncleanness that they feel like they have to pay for their own sin. I've seen people sabotage their relationships Because they believe that they're so bad that they don't deserve the love of others. You know, I've known people who've cut themselves because they hurt so much on the inside that they draw blood to relieve the tension. So how about for you? What do you do when you're sorry? What do you do when you're sorry? About up until about 100 years ago, towns in Europe had this very strange and unattractive job. Each village would have a sin eater. Now, a sin eater was a person who was an outcast, often excommunicated from the church. And when someone in your house was dying, you would invite the sin eater to come to your home. And he would sit on one side of the dying person. And then the family would sit on the other. And something like a piece of food or or a piece of bread um, would be placed on the body of the dying person. And a prayer would be said. And then the sin eater would take that piece of bread, drink some ale or eat a pinch of salt, and then eat it. Um, And this helped ensure a quick and safe passage for the dying person. So let me ask you, who or what eats your sin? Who or what takes away your sin? Who or what do you employ to do this job? So this semester, if you've been with us, you know that we are reading the book of Leviticus together. Um, Why are we reading the book of Leviticus? Well, um, Leviticus, in a lot of ways, and I've said this before, is, is our culture's excuse Um, to ignore the Bible. Um, One of our culture's excuses to throw out Christianity. And as we've looked at this book together so far, we've seen that as we're able to find meaning in this book, perhaps, um, perhaps we can trust all of it to direct our lives. And so far, what we've seen in the book of Leviticus is we've talked about the sacrifices, 
Um, we've talked about the priesthood. We've talked about food laws and clean laws. And as we've waded through these meticulous details, what we've seen again and again is that Leviticus is addressing what I would argue is the fundamental problem that every human faces. Leviticus presents this picture for us of God as holy, meaning that he is completely other than us, completely transcendent. He is perfect. He is righteous. And sin cannot be in his presence. And Leviticus also presents to us this picture of humans as sinful. That because of something that happened long ago, all of us are not the way that we're supposed to be. All of us have bent hearts. All of us have twisted desires. Leviticus shows us that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be and that somehow, somehow this is my fault. Somehow this is our fault. So this is the problem that Leviticus poses to us. How does God who is holy dwell with his people who are sinful? And the answer that Leviticus gives again and again is that God himself is the one who provides the solution. God himself is the one who makes a way, makes the way for his people to dwell in his presence. And tonight we're going to be looking at Leviticus 16 together. And Leviticus 16 is the hinge or the cornerstone of this book. It is the centerpiece of Leviticus. And it is a chapter about the Day of Atonement. Um, The Day of Atonement was a day each year when forgiveness, the forgiveness of God, was shown large. When debt was paid and when the people were made right together before God. And it gets at this fundamental human question. What do we do when we're sorry? Because we all need forgiveness. Each of us, right, we each have various strategies of dealing with our sin, for trying to get rid of this feeling of being unclean, and all of our strategies are insufficient. And in Leviticus 16, God is telling us as powerfully as he can. He's saying, I want you to know that you need forgiveness. I want to give you that forgiveness And I want you to live as forgiven people. And so he gives us the Day of Atonement. Um, Our outline for tonight is on your green sheet if you want to take notes. Um, And we're answering that question, how can we know that God forgives sin? And we're going to go through this. Um, It tells us that we need to know a high priest, that we need to confess our sins, and we need to act like we're forgiven. So I'm going to read for us from Leviticus 16. It's printed here in your bulletin. Um, This is God's word for us tonight. And he gives it to us because he loves us. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. 
And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns amongst you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. The priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for his holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you do give us your word, and we pray that you would help us now. Um, Lord, help me as I speak. Help us as we listen, Lord, that we might hear this, uh, make sense of our sin, and see Jesus, whom you've given to us. We pray in his name. Amen. So here in in Leviticus 16, God himself gives Moses these instructions for the Day of Atonement. And he begins by saying that you're supposed to do this once a year in a particular way so that your high priest won't die. In verse 1, God refers to the story that happens in Leviticus 10, which is this crazy story where Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, go into the temple, go into the tabernacle, and sacrifice to God in a way other than what God has commanded. Basically, they're coming to God on their own terms, not on his. And the result is that fire comes out from the Lord and consumes them, and they die before the Lord. It's like that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right where they open the Ark of the Covenant and like the laser beams come out of the Ark and kill all the Nazis, and then their faces melt off. That's what I thought of when I thought of this. Um, uh, have you guys not seen that? Okay, good. All right, all right. So what this is showing us is that God is holy. Right, He is other. We cannot come to Him on our own terms, but only on His alone. So here, what we have in Leviticus 16 is that God is giving us His terms. So what are His terms for coming to Him? Well, first he says you need to know a high priest. I want to thank Les Newsom for um, the content tonight. You need to know a high priest. Verses 1 through 5 are God's instructions of how Aaron should come inside the veil into the holy of holies in the tabernacle. Um, Would you put the slide up? So I want to explain the tabernacle to y'all real quick. So uh, what we see, the tabernacle was this... Um, the, this tent in the midst of the camp of Israel. So as they're camped out in the wilderness, we actually see that this is the instruction. This is what it would have looked like, what they instructed the people to build. And so you have this outer courtyard. This is where the sacrifices were made. And then the tabernacle is the building um, the building in, um, within the camp. Um, and as you can see, there's this cloud of smoke sitting upon it. And that's because God, that's how he made his presence known to his people, is that he was there in this cloud of smoke. If you go to the next slide. And so here is the inside of the tabernacle. I don't know how well you'll see it, but what you have is you have the outer courtyard, which has there's a lampstand and a table of bread and candles, and then there's this veil, this curtain. It has these ornate designs on it. And the reason why this is so colorful um, and so ornate is because it's to symbolize for God's people the very throne room of heaven. And then behind the veil is the Holy of Holies. The most holy place. So you see the Ark of the Covenant, um, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there's these cherubim, these winged angels sitting on it, and that's the place that we're talking about tonight. That's where um, where Aaron goes into the Holy of Holies. 
turn off. Um, so the high priest once a year would take off his high priestly garments and change into linens. What this is meaning is he just changed into simple servant's clothes. And the high priest had this task of going before God into the inner chamber of the temple, behind the veil, into the Holy of Holies. He did this once a year for everyone. His preparations took a week, um, and they were full of this fascinating imagery. So first he had to change his clothes. Usually, and you might have seen this a picture, the, whole, the high priest was wearing this very ornate um, outfit. And had these bright colors. But on this day, he was to take that off and instead put on these simple linen clothing. And the outfit would have made him look like a a normal servant with nothing to distinguish him from the rest of God's people. And second, he had to take a bath. He had to do this this ritual cleansing, um, this outward purity that would have been a sign for the inner purity that was required for this man. And then third, he had to prepare animal sacrifices for himself to cover his own sin and then for the people. And here we see in the end here in verses 29, 31, and 34, all say that this was a statute forever. And what this is saying is that the work of the high priest on behalf of the people will always be the way for God's people to know that God forgives them. So you need to know a high priest, and second, you need to confess your sins. Look at verses 20 to 22 with me. So the work of the Day of the Atonement focuses on two goats. The first goat, the high priest would kill as a sin offering for his people. He'd bring the blood inside the veil, sprinkle the blood over the mercy seat, which was the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And we're told that this goat made atonement for the sins of the people. But in verses 15 to 19, which we didn't read, we're also told that this offering is to make atonement for the holy place and to make atonement for the altar. Now, why would there need to be sacrifice for an inanimate object like a room or a piece of furniture? And the answer is powerful. The answer is because a sinner touched it. Even when the world around you, even the world around you is defiled because of your rebellion. This is saying that sin is never a victimless crime. We are culpable for everything that we have ever touched. But there's a second goat. And the second goat is the goat of verses 20 to 22. And this is where we get the word scapegoat. It's literally the escape goat. This is the goat who leaves and never comes back. Look at what the high priest does to the goat before he sends it out. Look at verse 21 with me. It says, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins, shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. He shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. I want us to see a couple of things from this. Um, the first is that sin is a lethal substance that must be removed from the camp. Sin is a lethal substance. And second is that the sin is confessed on the goat. What do you think it would have been like, or what do you think it would be like, to have all of your sins, all of your dirty laundry spoken out loud? And not just your sin individually, but the sin of the whole community. What do you think that would have been like? A question I often hear from, um, from Christian students is, um, how do I live my way in such a way that people will know that I'm a Christian? How do I behave so that it's clear that my life is different from my peers who don't share the same faith? And this is something that many of you worry about. Um, you read books so that you're prepared to give philosophical answers to your classmates and your professors. Um, you spend hours worrying about whether or not it's okay for you to drink at that party or that date function. You spend hours worrying about whether or not you should be seen with a certain group of people. 
You worry if your actions will be good enough for others to know that you're a Christian. And I wonder what would happen if all the Christians at Wake Forest assembled once a year and said something like this. Oh Lord, we have sinned against you and against our neighbor. Lord, we have let the pressures of Wake Forest dictate how we are to live, not your command to love you with our whole heart and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We have lusted after and not loved one another. We have taken what is not ours to take and given what is not ours to give. We have lied. We have cheated. We have stolen. We are lazy in prayer and strategic in sin. We spend more time with our Netflix than we do reading your word. We would rather be comfortable than compassionate. We forsake those who are down and out so that we can become people who are up and in. You tell us to love our neighbors ourselves, but we put our resume before everything else. We have eagerly pursued our secret addictions to pornography. We have let porn shape the way we view our women, pressuring them into a sexual mold that values them for their body parts, not because they bear the image of God. We have dressed as provocatively as we can, calling it innocent flirting, dressing our bodies to drive the boys crazy because we know we can. We have been drunk enough times to be called alcoholics. We excuse it because it's the only way we know how to be 19 and cope with the pressure of Wake Forest. We turn to the bottle or the can before we turn to you. We have judged those who are not like us, excluded those who cannot help us advance socially. If the world could see our hearts and our thoughts, it would openly shame us, for there is no health in us. We've been angry with you for the ways our lives have gone. We have doubted your goodness to us. We're not the men we so desperately want others to think that we are. We're not the women we so long to have someone notice that we are. Our sins and iniquities have gone above our heads. They are a burden too too heavy to bear. And I'm tempted to say that we don't need to make any more judgments on this campus. To have, we don't need to make any more judgments to the watching non-Christians on this campus until we have communicated to them that we actually believe what I've just said. And perhaps the reason why many of you do not sense God's forgiveness is because maybe you don't believe that you have anything to be forgiven for. But the beautiful thing about God's provision in Leviticus 16 is that the mere admission of those types of things opens wide a door for us spiritually. In verse 24, we see Aaron put back on his royal robes. And this is an image for us that shows us and describes the forgiven person. They begin to take on the outward appearance of royalty. It has this dramatic change of appearance that turns a beggar into a rich man in an instant. God is telling his atone for people in verses 29 to 31 that he wants them to live like a forgiven people. Well, how? He does this two ways. First, he wants them to afflict themselves. This isn't physically bo- physical body harm, but it's a new posture of humility, of being contrite, of knowing their brokenness. When you know what you are capable of, you are freed from judging others. When you know what you're capable of, you're freed to be compassionate. The boast on your lips is no longer your own name, but the name of God. And second, God says that he wants them to rest. This whole day he gives them for resting. Because though they are afflicted, they are deeply loved. This is it. The primary way, primary way to act as though you've been forgiven is to rest. 
to exhale. So the question for you tonight is how can you know that you are forgiven? Well, first, you need a high priest, and Jesus is the true high priest. Hebrews 9 makes this explicit, that all of the ancient priests point to Jesus, that Jesus Christ is the true high priest. In Hebrews 9, verse 12, we're told that Jesus entered heaven, the true holy place, once for all, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. Jesus is the true high priest. And Jesus is the true and final sacrifice. Instead of offering animals for a sacrifice, he sacrificed himself. He sacrificed his own blood so that he could, at the moment of his death, split open that curtain, tear apart that veil that divided his people from his immediate presence. For when Christ died, we're told in Matthew's gospel, the veil which separated the holy place from the rest of the tabernacle was split in two from top to bottom. And what I'm saying here is that the assurance that you long for in the final analysis is going to have something to do with Jesus. You need a high priest, and Jesus has given himself to you as the high priest. And you need to confess your sins, and Jesus is the one who carries your sin away from you. Jesus is the goat. He's the greatest of all time, and he is the goat. (laughs) Jesus is our goat. Isaiah 53 says that he was wounded for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 1 Peter 2, quoting Isaiah 53, says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. What he's saying is that when you look at the cross of Christ, God is showing you two things. First, he is showing you the depth and the weight of your sin. If you ever wonder how bad your sin is, look at the cross. Look at what it costs God to forgive you. Then you will see how far God himself went to carry your sin. But second, what God shows us on the cross is Jesus shows you that he has borne all of it. He has borne all of it. Every sin you have committed, every sin you will commit, Jesus carries that away from you so that you might know and experience the forgiveness of God. Our call to worship, which Taylor read for us tonight, came from Psalm 103. And verse 12 of Psalm 103 says this. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And I wonder if the psalmist there is reflecting on the Day of Atonement. That he is sitting there as he watches the goat carry the sins of Israel into the wilderness. To where the goat can't be seen anymore. Seeing that his sin is gone and proclaiming, as far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. In the same way and so much more, Jesus has borne your sin away from you. So confess it to him that you might know your father's forgiveness. So Jesus is our true high priest. Jesus is the goat. And finally, Jesus is your assurance that you are forgiven. A friend of mine told me a story of when he was newly married and he and his wife were going through a rocky patch Together, And they sat with a pastor in his office who looked at them in the eye and said, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. That is all you will ever need to know. Christ is risen. How do I know that God has forgiven my sin? How do I know that I am cleansed? Well, look at the cross and then look at the empty tomb. For 2,000 years, people have been searching for the body of Jesus. They've been unable to find it because Christ is risen. And he is in heaven as your high priest. Christ is risen. That is all you need. 
We're going to finish tonight, we're going to close tonight by singing um, the song Before the Throne of God Above. And we sang this last week, but I want us to sing it again tonight because it gives us words together to claim this truth for ourselves. To claim this truth for one another, that what God has accomplished for you in Christ is finished. That he has borne your sins away from you so that you might know that you are forgiven. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you are so clear in your word what it is that you have accomplished for us. Lord, the thing that we could not do for ourselves, make repairs to amend for our sin, you have done. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have done it. Lord, um, come now and lift our voices to you as we sing in response to your grace.